This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. On this episode of the show, it's Gordon Setters and Grouse Hunting with Stephen Faust. Welcome to the show for episode number 85. podcast is presented by onyx hunt creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters use the promo code pup20 to save 20 percent on your onyx hunt subscription today buried in snow up here not getting into the woods as much but i'm still using onyx basically now i'm just looking at my favorite hunting spots and wishing i was there dreaming i was there mapping scouting planning for next season very few days go by where i don't pop open the onyx hunt app on my phone head over to the apple itunes or google play store today and get it the project upland podcast is also brought to you by our friends at pine ridge grouse camp you haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at pine ridge find out more about the pine ridge grouse camp experience by visiting pineridgegrousecamp.com and by dr callers for over 30 years doctor has collaborated with industry professionals to create class leading tools for e-collar training gps GPS tracking and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. 
I'm a big fan of Dr. Collars. They make high quality, intuitive products, easy to use, and very effective, even for a completely amateur trainer like myself. Head over to Dogtra.com, check out their collars and the rest of their products. And buy Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food out in the field. How you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA, high quality, handcrafted premium rubber boots. Use the promo code PUP10 to save 10% from gumleafusa.com. Rubber boots work all year round. They keep water out. They also keep snow out. And if you have the neoprene lining, they'll keep your feet warm too. Love my Gumleaf boots. Check them out, gumleafusa.com. And by Gordian Sons Outfitters. When your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. When your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that coil. At Gordian Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt, not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about Gordian Sons Outfitters by visiting GordianSons.com. And finally, by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One piece, rotomold design, frame steel door, not too heavy, just the right size. Everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Head over to Dakota283.com. Learn more about their kennels today. All right, this week's winner of the Project Open Podcast giveaway is Adi Miller, who was nominated by his friend for taking him grouse hunting this fall. Adi's friend is a self-proclaimed adult onset hunter looking for exposure and experience in the woods. Adi stepped in, brought him into the woods, and his friend had a heck of a season here in Minnesota and shared with me some photos and some memories that he was able to make and was really appreciative of his friend Adi. And Adi also introduced his friend to the podcast, so we really appreciate that, Adi. You got a Project Upland t-shirt headed your way. Thank you both for listening, and anybody out there could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post, share it with a friend like Adi did, take somebody hunting, introduce them to the podcast, anything you can do to promote Project Upland community and the people within it. We appreciate all of it. All right, big announcement this week. We finally officially announced our collaboration with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Public Grouse, the one-hour feature film screening at over 20 locations across the country. Head over to projectupland.com or Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. You will find the Public Grouse event details and listings online. Get your tickets today. You can buy them through Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I'll be at the showing in Minneapolis. I might be at a few other showings within the region. There'll probably be some familiar faces and friends and followers at all of the events i hope to see some listeners there if you haven't heard about it go check it out public grouse one hour feature film coming to a location near you hopefully in early 2020 screening starting in february all right this week's guest on the project up and podcast is stephen faust of stony brook gordon setters stephen has been bird hunting and working with bird dogs for over 40 years he now breeds and trains his own line of gordon setters he spends almost every day of the fall in the woods 
guiding grouse and woodcock hunts in Minnesota, also back home in the southeast, North Carolina, the mountains of Virginia. Stephen Faust is a wealth of knowledge. He spent more time in the woods than probably most of us will ever be fortunate enough to accumulate. If you can't learn something from this dude, I can't help you. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Stephen Faust. He's a great guy. I had a lot of fun talking to him. Let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Open podcast of Stony Brook Gordon Setters, Stephen Faust. Stephen Faust, welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure to have you on the podcast, Stephen. I'm really glad you could join us. I'm excited to talk about, you know, I'm really excited to talk about grouse and woodcock hunting because my opportunity has seemingly vanished <laughs> under uh, <laughs> mountains of, of white stuff outside my windows. I, I have a feeling you're not in the same predicament as I am right now. No, not quite. I've been watching your uh, white blanket fall on the on the news. I think it's supposed to hit fifty to fifty five degrees today here. So, not quite in the same weather. Oh man, fifty five degrees sounds that sounds very nice. And uh, <laughs> and no snow on the ground. No snow at all. We've had a couple flurries, but no snow. And you know, if we had that much snow down here, it would completely close down North Carolina. But uh, up in the mountains at elevation, there's a little bit of snow. But here where I am, no, I ran on woodcock yesterday so we have we have great weather so with that in mind Stephen, let's let's just get this out of the way tell us where you are sort of your location home base and i know you travel around based on what you do and we're going to get into that but tell us uh tell us where you are on the map right now Stephen. i am at home in union grove north carolina there's a an hour and 15 minutes or so north of charlotte in the foothills of north carolina about half an hour south of virginia Gotcha. And you spend most of the year there. Yes, I, I spend most of the year here. This is home and, uh, you know, my little bit of time in the spring up in Minnesota and then back in the fall for mm, almost two months. So, yeah. yeah. So we, we kind of alluded to it. Our, our seasons up here in the northern Great Lakes region were winding down. The seasons are still open, but obviously they're very conditioned and weather dependent to a certain extent. What is the status of bird season down there? Just kind of getting going? Well, grouse season generally opens the second week of October, but it's hot and warm, and okay. the, the leaves are thick and all that, but right now we're in the prime of grouse, really. Um, deer season is mostly over after Thanksgiving. It might still be open, but most people are done hunting, so we pretty much have the woods to ourselves for grouse. Woodcock season starts this Saturday, the 7th of December, okay. so we're just getting ready to just getting ready to kick off that. All right, that's interesting. Yeah, so, so the seasons aren't necessarily totally offset as far as grouse goes but the the way that it works out as far as prime time being our prime time is much earlier up here which is obviously why you find yourself up in this neck of the woods and now you can travel down back home and you've got another prime time of grouse season that sounds nice Correct. I, like, I, like I tell people, I get to enjoy two falls, the first one up there, and then when I leave, you know, of course, it's already snowing and the leaves are gone, and I come back down here just in time to catch the tail end of the, the leaves changing and just pick it right back up. I don't have much time off. So you've kind of figured out exactly what a lot of us <clears throat> sort of, you know, kick kick the dirt under our shoes and, and ponder and think about how could we make October longer. You've kind of figured that out, Stephen. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, I get about two months worth of October. <laughs> I do want to, I don't want to do it right now. I don't want to compare and contrast the grouse hunting 
based on your location. We'll get into that, but I, I don't know where to start. I don't know whether to talk grouse, dogs, or boots. I don't know which way direction to go, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all tied. They're all tied together. So whichever one. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Well, being that you've kind of put a bow on your time in Minnesota and you do spend a couple of months up here and you're in the woods essentially every day. So you've got great perspective. I would love to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, and I know you're a numbers guy too, so we can talk about that a little bit. I'd love to get your thoughts on your time in Minnesota and the grouse and woodcock season you experienced with your, your guiding clients and everything this fall. Okay. Um, well, I got up there on September 18th. And it's a, about a 20-hour drive. I spend the night somewhere and just sleep in the truck with the dogs. I have a topper and a trailer. So I just, wherever I get too tired to keep driving, I sleep for a few hours and then finish up. And um, got, uh, I got to camp. I got to Pine Ridge about late morning on the 18th and unpacked and said hello to a few folks. And we jumped in the truck and went and hit the woods. Um, the first few days, there were no, no clients in camp yet. So I, I go scout a few new spots that I've seen. I spend all summer on the satellite looking at looking for spots and then I go and, you know, put boots on the ground, so to speak, and, and check them out. Um, so after that, the, the first clients come in uh, that opening weekend of Woodcock and, and I'm in the woods every day. I was in the woods for 45 days. I did take a, a quick weekend to fly home from my son's senior night soccer game in college and then flew back and finished up the season. How many, um, how many dogs do you bring up there, Steven? I had, how many did I bring up there? Eight. I have eight. So, eight dogs. I have so you one, got dog one client, one, I own seven, and I have one that I bred that was in and out a few times that I ran some for a client. Okay. Who actually lives up there, and his name is Bogey. He's turning into something good, so I enjoy having him, him around. He's actually down here with me some more. So 45 days straight, that's a lot of time spent in the grouse and woodcock <laughs> woods. Does it, does it ever get old? No, it never does. It, honestly, it never does. It. I will say that when you wake up in late October and it's 33 degrees and raining and the wind's blowing, yeah. Sometimes you, you have to look in the mirror and say that you're crazy, but but your clients are ready to go and, and and you have to take them out and you have to put on your game face and they're they're excited to be there and you have to be excited to take them out and that that's the hard part yeah. is, is the weather. But no, I, I I love to see a dog on point and and I always have since the first time I saw it as a kid. It's just that's my bug fever is seeing a dog point and I've seen it a million times and it still thrills me. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And you did mention it. We didn't spend a ton of time on it, but you are, when you're in Minnesota, you're guiding for a friend of the podcast, Jerry Havel at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. So you're in, in northern Correct. northern Minnesota and Correct. taking taking his clients into the woods and, and having, a, having a good old time at Pine Ridge. Yeah, we have a great time. I love being there. I, I kid Jerry and Brenda that I'm an honorary Havel, whether they like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but a lot of my clients from down here also make the trip, and they come up and they book in, um, their trips uh, to the Northwoods as well. So it's nice. I think I had I don't know maybe maybe seventeen total come up this this fall and hunt with Jerry and, and stay at camp. So that's cool. It, it's nice to it, it's nice when clients will follow you around because you know the traveling wing shooting population is not huge. So you, you have to have that as, as somebody that's going to try to make a living as a guide. You, you can't have turnover. You have to have repeat clients. Yeah. And Jerry, we do well with that. Jerry does very well with that at camp. So. Yeah, and you could you could easily see the appeal of somebody that knows you and they they like hunting with you from down south to for them to take a trip up to Minnesota, spend time at Pine Ridge, and hunt with you up there. That's that's got to be really appealing to that person. Well, yes, it is, and, and you know, and, and especially down here, if 
uh, drag them up and down the mountains for grouse. And we put up a few grouse, and they ask what it's like <laughs> to hunt Minnesota. And I, and I tell them it's almost flat. They laugh, and they, they, they call Jerry that afternoon sometimes and start talking about a trip. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I, I know that I've never, obviously, I haven't hunted grouse and woodcock down your way. I haven't hunted anything down that way, but I I'm familiar enough with what it appears to be like for, through reading and, and following people like you. But I know for a fact that the hunting that I do up here is, is a lot less uh, physically taxing than what you guys do down there. Well, we laugh. Um, one of the other guys from North Georgia, Coach and I were laughing about, we can, we can walk all day up there and, and the pedometer says we've only gone you know, one or two floors worth of up and down, Sure. which, which down here, some, I think the most I've ever seen down here is 129 feet. So, you can for the same distance basically the same mileage yeah so it's and people ask what it's like people like you would say well what is like what is it like to hunt grouse in the mountains and i'll look at the cover and you know the cover is the same but it's just on a 30 degree angle (laughs) yep yep (laughs) the birds I, i imagine the birds must use that elevation to their advantage a little bit correct i think the north carolina wildlife resource commission really says uh 1500 feet is a minimum to find them and I, you know, I'm sure there's a little give and take there, but, but the higher up you go and, and I've hunted, you know, pretty high up to over 4,000 feet down here and found birds, um, they do use it as their advantage, but, but it's the higher up you go, the more of the, in certain places, the more of a Canadian and Northern forest appeal there are, you know, we have some silver birch and, okay. and spruce trees. So Again, that wintertime food source is there for them, so that that helps. The elevation definitely helps there. Yeah, so that's that's really interesting to me because I'm I'm familiar with, of course, the area that you hunt in Minnesota, and I know, Correct. I mean, really anywhere in northern Minnesota, it's swamp country for the most part. We have a lot of swamps. It's a lot of flat mm-hmm. ground, and <laughs> there's a lot of standing water, uh, which is why we wear a certain uh, certain boot that we'll talk about a little bit later. But <laughs> but interestingly, you know, we, I don't, I mean you just don't really hunt a lot of elevation. It's all low stuff. And that the low stuff really kind of dictates a certain cover type and type of habitat really. So when you're hunting them, when you're hunting them in the South on the slopes, you're still, I've talked to enough people to know that you hunt rough grouse in different regions. You're still generally speaking, you're looking for stem density and that's what you're looking for. So no matter what those stems are made up of, and no matter if they're wet, dry, or neither, you're looking for that stem density and the structural diversity. So that that holds true. That's what you're looking for down there. Correct. Yes, sir. The stem density it has to be there. Regenerating cover. Everything's the same there. Um, you can also find them in heavy rhododendron cover, which is almost impossible to shoot through and out of once the bird flushes. But they will be in that. Uh, would you really can, would you a, compare that to like uh, like like the, some of the thick hazel brush that we have up here? Yes, but rhododendron keeps the green year round. So oh. you can imagine, imagine it in, in early season when the green is still on, or standing in a nice odor swamp or something when the leaves are still heavy and green. That's kind of a rhododendron cover. So that would suck um, because I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I get really excited. Usually the leaves drop and the hazel brush this year, for sure, the hazel brush kind of hung onto its leaves a little bit longer. And and I was thinking, gosh, when that comes down, you know, we're going to be in the money and and that's the way that it happened. So if the hazel brush kept kept its leaves all year, that would be, that would suck. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, and that's the thing, and you know, the, the the grouse will eat the hazel buds and everything too. But mm-hmm. rhododendron is not really a it's not a food source; it's gotcha. really just a cover source. Um, 
But and it's a year-round, heavy, thick green leaf. Almost looks like a magnolia leaf. And if you can imagine, you, you see the bird flush off the ground like you would up north, but then it just disappears and right. it's gone. Yeah. So, so it's, it's the same thing. And you're, you're, you know, sometimes you're standing with one knee on the, your upslope, knee on the ground, and your your back foot on the ground because you're on <laughs> such a steep angle. <laughs> Man. Yeah, well, I'll and then have, you wonder why you're doing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I have those moments even hunting up here, so I imagine they would be amplified <laughs> down there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would definitely love to experience that someday. It's it's definitely. Well, I have really I have fun. like I imagine you do. I have a fascination with the rough grouse, and I've as every year and and day goes by, I appreciate more and more its ability to adapt to its geographic range, which is pretty extensive oh i agree i I love i love the challenge of grouse too such a such a challenging bird whether down here on the side of a mountain or up there thick in a a tangle somewhere and and your clients will always say you know carry a gun and and shoot with us we want you to have fun but they don't understand that watching a dog nail a grouse to me is the fun of the day i don't i honestly don't care if they kill the bird or not that's their that's their job i just i just love to see the dogs point them like that and that's the challenge of that is fantastic yeah i hear you so i want to transition briefly but i will ask how many years have you been going up to and hunting in minnesota is it a couple now two three yeah it's two two years at pine ridge but i got it on the up before that that's right okay Yeah. yeah okay so as you well know, the last couple of years really across the Great Lakes region have been kind of, a lot of people have had, have had tough hunting, including myself included, you know, relative to other years, numbers have been down this year. I felt was a really nice uptick in the birds from my personal experience. I felt, I felt Mm -hmm. like I did well pretty much everywhere we go. What was your kind of finger on the pulse of, of the birds this year? I agree. No, we we had, we had a good grouse year and, and me personally, I had a good year and, and I agree with you that it seemed to be on a good uptick, yeah. but, but we were early in the season, a lot of very young birds yes. and, and a lot of pin feathers and some that were really still growing in from, you know, their first set of real feathers. So they obviously had a late nesting period. Yep. Um, and I, and I've seen pictures of young birds with one inch tail fans from early in the season. So, yeah. So that, that bodes well if, if they can pull off a second nest that late or re-nest that late and get them ready for the winter, then, then good. Right. That was my experience as well. A lot of young juvenile birds in the woods, including some, you know, I bagged some birds early that were some of the smallest birds that I'd ever seen or bagged. So Correct. that was, yeah. that definitely, yeah. I experienced that as well. But like you said, hopefully those birds, the ones that, that were not, didn't end up in somebody's bag they're uh you know winter capable and we were joking about that a little bit we've got a lot of snow and there's a lot of good roosting snow <laughs> for grouse here right now now it hasn't been very cold so they're they're probably in good shape either way but they're sure. uh they're off to a good start as far as the snowpack goes well and i think last year i know last winter was bitter cold but you had great snow on the ground up there which yep which when you, when you tell somebody especially from this part of the country that that actually is better for the birds to overwinter with that much snow on the ground because then you explain snow roosting and, and all of that to them, and they understand it. They uh, you, you have to make them understand that the birds are winter adapted and they rely on it, and they do better with snow on the ground like that. Exactly. And then they start to see it, and which was really interesting when I was up this spring for for banding woodcock at, at Pine Ridge. And some of the first days we got out and the snow had just really melted and you could see in the open areas, all the clumps of grouse poop where they had spent the, spent the winter in the snow. Yep. And it had just slowly moved and melted down to the ground. That was very interesting. Isn't that amazing how many you can see in like a given area? 
Oh, it's it, like a basketball court size. I mean, there were probably, I don't know, one spot probably had uh, 50, 50 poop. I mean, 50 little piles. Yep. It was, it was awesome. It was so neat. Yeah, that's, that's pretty neat. I've seen that doing some spring scouting and stuff up in, up in those areas, mm-hmm. especially you go out into a clear cut because usually there's a lot of big, that's an open area. The grouse, they know that they'll roost or they'll feed along the edge of those clear cuts and then they'll, They'll dive bomb into the snow out in the the wide open clear cuts there, and they'll leave the they they could be down there for a couple of days at a time, I believe, and they'll obviously yeah. leave, oh, leave yeah. droppings there, and then they move on and leave. And in the spring, you see those those piles of droppings. It's yeah. pretty interesting. It is it's very neat. All right, Stephen. So I want to I want to rewind a little bit and talk about sort of how you got into this world of breeding dogs, guiding grouse and woodcock hunts in the whole world of upland hunting. How did you get started? Was it a family thing from the very get-go? Yes, dad Dad was a big, or still is. Dad is getting ready to turn 81. He still has dogs. But he, uh, we kept dogs, and we had English setters and English pointers growing up. And, and labs, we had labs for duck hunting and for field trialing, different dogs. And uh, 13-inch beagles for rabbits, so we've done all that. And dad was stationed in Germany in the Army. And as, a, as an officer, he could hunt, so he had a wire hair when he was over there. And, and then, then they came back and started their family, and I came along and just, I didn't have a choice. This was a good thing because I love it, and, and always hunted and always fished. And just like I said earlier, the first time I saw dogs on point as a kid, it was down behind the duck club, and it just, I can still picture it, and that's been a long time ago now, <laughs> um, 40, 40 years ago now, I guess. So it's just it just blew me away to watch. There were five English setters and English pointers all locked up on a cubby of quail. Wow. And it just just blew me away. I just had never seen anything as, as cool. And I probably shot in self-defense the first few times. But, <laughs> but, but I don't remember my first quail or a woodcock. But, um, but you know, it, the, the woodcock is something that as, as an individual bird took back in the woods, the older I got, the more appealing it got to me. Yep. And then, I, then I went to um, I went to college up in the mountains, and uh, the first grouse I saw was just amazing. So I think the next weekend home, I took one of the setters and snuck her back into school with me, and we went and tried that. And that was in the late '80s, so I've just been hooked ever since. I love to be in the forest, though. I don't, you know, the plains birds, and I know a lot of people like to shoot everything, and that's fine. Yeah, I just don't. Plains birds don't really have any appeal to me. I love to be in the trees. I love to look up through the trees. Clients will ask me. <laughs> clients ask me if uh, if I'm looking for birds in trees sometimes, and I giggle and say, "No, I'm just looking up through them." <laughs> <laughs> You're forest but bathing out there. I am. I'm just forest gazing, and I'm listening <laughs> to the bells, the bells jingle, and keeping up with the dogs, and, and just enjoying myself. And I, and that's the that's the appeal of it to me. I love to be in the woods, and I love bird dogs. So I started guiding. A little bit, you know, part-time on weekends and things like that, probably 10 or 15 years ago, and, and then donate a little uh, woodcock hunt to the Wolf Grouse Society chapter to help as a fundraiser, and it just kind of grew from there. And then I was a I was a wholesale food salesman for, that was my paying career there. Sure. And just finally, that got so cutthroat and corporate that it just was no longer fun, and it didn't do anything for me, so we both feed into this world. And we always, we bred dogs growing up like and so that was nothing new. And I still, I still call dad for advice and, you know, being a dad, he's free to give it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. So definitely you were exposed early and you were exposed to a lot of elements. It wasn't just hunting. It was dogs and breeding of dogs. When did, when did things come together for you as far as, you know, selecting 
Gordon Setters because that's what you breed. We haven't talked about that specifically, Correct. but we'll have you talk about your dogs and how how your kennel started up, really. Okay. Well, I got my first Gordon, uh, um, I don't know, maybe 25 years ago. Okay. And, and she, she, was, she was amazing. She was just a natural and just uh, – there's no other word for it. It was amazing. And I just never looked back from that. I've had – I owned one Brittany that – I mean, he was a fine dog, but he was just not for me. So I, uh, I just went from there with the Gordons. And, and where did you get that first Gordon from? She was a Springset dog. And Springset is um, was is a big kennel that was in California. I know I'm muttering my words here. And Norm Sorby was, is credited with bringing the field Gordon Setter back around. Okay. Even before I was born, probably I don't know the time frame, but I know through the early early seventies into the seventies. And now his Laura, his daughter Laura, has the kennel, and I believe she is in Oregon now. But she was my dog. Toby was a spring set dog and not a big dog, but she uh, topped out about 40 pounds, I think, about the size of some of my females now. And just and I like uh, I'm very old fashioned. I hate the classic things. There's a thing I could do about Edmund Davis. I like that, that stuff. And, and, and the Gordon Setter just fit just right for me. I love the fact that they've been breeding black and tan setters in Scotland since the 15th century. They were now the Gordon Setter is the Scottish version. You got the English, the Irish. And the okay, Gordon. okay. I didn't, I, Gordon, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yep. So it was, instead of being named the Scottish Setter, it's named after the fourth Duke of Gordon, who is credited with cementing in the black and tan coloration. Gotcha. Even though Gordon's traditionally were a tricolor dog, and a lot of people don't realize that the Llewellyn Setter, the first two dogs that bought by Llewellyn. To start his line, uh, Dan and Dick. Dan and Dick's mother was half Gordon Setter and half South Esk, which is an extinct breed now. But that was a Setter breed, kind of looked like a Labrador. Really? But so, so the Llewellyn. I've seen current Llewellyn pictures that look a lot like a Gordon Setter, and I've actually seen tricolor Gordons that look like Llewellyn. So the, the, the bloodline is very, very prominent in both dogs. But yes, the, the Gordon was a foundation dog in the. Uh, in the Llewellyn bloodlines, I believe 1871 was the year. But the market hunters, all, all reports indicate that market hunting was heavily dependent upon Gordon setters for their work rate. And that's what I love about them. They are the heaviest boned of the three setters, and they were bred for all-day labor, is something to that effect. And they are heavy boned. And like, like we were talking about before, I hunted 45 days and I have two dogs that hunted every one of those days and one that hunted 43. And then the younger dogs, I rotate in and out. Yeah, I don't run as hard for the first couple of years. But uh, for a dog to be able to do that and, and go all day, every day and come out of the box ready for more, and to me, is a credit to the breed and their bloodline going back to being the working man, the working gun dog, helping market hunters earn a living. Yeah, that's really a testament. I remember when you and I were chatting, we were at Pine Ridge not this fall, but the past fall we were chatting and right. you were talking about your, your dog, some of your main dogs hunting every day. And, and I just found that fascinating. I mean, that's obvious. And now they're, I mean, I guess you could correct me if I'm wrong, but you have dog power. So you're rotating them in and out. They're not hunting all day, Correct. every day, but that Correct. is, that is a testament to the dog that they're not beating themselves up. I'd be curious, how do they, how do your dogs run? How do they take care of themselves in the field? Do they have do they have kind of a grace and a style that just allows them to be durable like that? They they do. They and I don't train in open areas. All all my training with puppies and everything is always in the woods because that's where I hunt. Okay. Um, but they, they know the woods and they don't tear through the woods. I have one 
Sasha, and, and she's a pretty good dog, but she is kind of quick in the woods, but very, but very cautious when she hits scent. I wish she would slow down just a little bit, but she's not a big dog. She doesn't get out to, you know, a hundred yards is pushing it for my dog. Okay. They're, they're, they're very close and they all wear bells. And, and once the leaves all come down, I pretty much just take the GPS collar off because I can find them. Sure. But the, um, style they go through the woods they're they're very i'm not sure of the word they're very good at just getting through the woods without getting beat up yeah i think the worst injury the worst injury i had was a stick in the eye and i did that three or four times myself so i can't complain about that (laughs) but but my i have one seven-year-old blue and we we laugh about him we call him the machine because he just you put him on the ground and start him and he just goes but he uh his tail gets pretty beat up because the way he he runs with it and it's just slapping everything Yep. But by the time by the time it starts to grow back on in late summer, we're starting all over again. So it's pretty much just bald by now. <laughs> <laughs> so that also brings up an interesting point. I was going to call you about a week or two ago because I remembered that. I'd seen pictures of your dog Blue <laughs> where his tail is pretty much just bare. Now it just it looks hairless. It doesn't necessarily look too terribly beat up, but my dog he runs through the woods, I would say, with caution. He does not beat himself up in the woods. He runs through the woods very right. well. And he's I found that interesting that you mentioned you you always run your dogs in the woods as much as possible so they learn how to run through the woods. And I felt like that was something that my dog did. We have wooded parks nearby that mm-hmm. that's where we exercise. So that's where he learned sure. how to run through the woods. And so sure. he does not yeah. beat himself up. He does have a high kind of a cracking tail, and so the tip of his sure. tail usually gets usually gets a little bit bloody and beat up towards the end of the season this year it for whatever reason i don't know if i don't know that we really hunted all that much more but this reason this year his tail got beat up pretty bad and i was i started trying to bandage it up and take care of it and wrap it and tape it and get everything going healing and i thought we had it beat but then at one point it got infected and mm-hmm. it was in mm-hmm. rough shape and i went to the vets and a couple of different vets actually wanted to cut the tail off and Ooh, yeah. So I was, I was kind of down in the dumps and really didn't know what to do, but I, I ended up calling a, a handful of, you know, bird dog folks and, and vets and just kind of getting their opinion. And I mean, to make a long story short, we kind of just took the wait and see approach. We put them on antibiotics and made sure it didn't get any worse, but it appears to me like his tail is going to make a full recovery. But uh, I was I was ready to call you and just ask if if you'd ever had anything <laughs> anything deteriorate to that point and and what you do to prevent or just monitor and and take care of them. No, I, I've never had anything that bad. I will say that Blue had did end up with a little bit of a bacterial uh, and skin infection on his tail. We treated yep. it with uh, antibiotics last summer. Okay. Just for the fact that there's there's no there's just no hair on it. Right. Yep. From, on the top side, but it's you know on the bottom side, the feathering and everything is there and it's yep. fine. Yeah. But but no, and, and the tips of all of them, you know, by the end of the season are pretty well torn up and try to put stuff on there. I know Bogey, the one that's down here, and he's he's from he lives in Hackensack, okay. Minnesota now, and and he's down here and. Debbie did send some medication and wraps and all that stuff for it. But I do put the medication on, but the wraps just get torn off in the woods down yep. here. The, the, briars, the briars and some of the scurrilla and stuff we find woodcocking down here are just so super thick that nothing, nothing sticks. Yep. Everything gets pulled off. So I just keep an eye on it. If it looks real bad, I'll put some salve on there. But, you know, it's part of the job. I know I'm kind of tough on my dogs because I, I rely on them. But it's also they're doing what they were bred and love to do. And 
you know, I'm not going to prevent them from doing that. Yep. If their tails get beat up, that's kind of that's kind of like getting mud on your new brand new truck. That's why you bought it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And that uh, tip of the bloody tail, you know, it's never never bothered me too much. Obviously you keep an eye on it. You don't want your dog suffering or in pain or anything, right. you know, sure, and this year sure. it just got bad, but I was, it was really helpful to call and talk to a handful of people really like yourself that are running dogs more than I am and just kind of get, you know, and that have a lot of experience doing it. You know, I've seen a lot of different dogs and do you see, mm-hmm. I think I know the answer to this question, but you see a difference in sort of like the abuse uh, an individual dog's tail takes just based on the way they carry it. Some dogs worse than others. Oh, oh yes, sir. Without a doubt. Yep. And the way blue runs, it's funny when he points, he's got a low tail, okay. which is fine with me. I'm not wrong. You know, either way, I don't mind a, a low tail. I have some dogs that even set, but when he runs it's high and cracking and it just slaps into every. And it's just, that's why it just gets so torn up. The other dogs seem to have more of an out the back tail while they're moving, but his, for whatever reason, and his gait is just, it just slaps every branch and every twig he goes by. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We've kind of danced around a little bit (laughs) talking about how your dogs work in the grouse woods, but I'm really curious to hear a little bit more. And I have some specific questions. These are based on some some conversations and discussions that I've had with some of my grouse hunting friends and sort of watching my own dog and watching other dogs hunt, but paint us a little bit of a picture on how you like your dogs to work in the grouse woods and range, which you did kind of mention, but then also manners on birds and how you like to see them working birds. And for this example, we'll talk about rough grouse. Okay. Well, first of all, my dog's generally are within i would say 50 to 70 yards okay and and checking back in is is okay i have a few that do it and uh and a few that don't and, I, and we're talking about blue blue style as he goes and when he wants to know where i am he just stops moving and i call his name and he'll start moving again if i have to call it a couple of times we go to him because he's pointing gotcha as far as as, as manners on birds especially grouse rough grouse they have to stop on the first scent my dogs will stop and even if they know that bird's 100 yards away they will stop wait for me to get there and then and then we'll close the gap i know field trialers can't stand to see it they call it creeping but as somebody that's got a as a guide you have to put a bird up for your client yeah and and creeping whether we just call it trailing because we got to get close enough for that client to get a to get a fair look at the bird and we thought I don't go 200 and 250 yards trailing nice and slowly and we're keeping up and I just tell the clients to stay you know one client I'll get on the other side of the dog but generally a pair of clients I I say stay about 10 feet on either side of her she turns left turn left with her and just follow her and she'll take us right to the bird and it, it happens time and time again but I think the dogs have to realize that first scent you have to stop there because grouse all grouse species have sentinel birds and like you see a, a flock of geese sitting out in a in a field and you, ha- you know half of them their heads are up looking for danger well grouse are the same way and those sentinel birds are the first ones that are going to blow out of there at a sign of danger so if if you can close that gap and get to the birds without busting it at 75 yards then you know you're going to get a fair look at it and, and a fair look in the grouse woods as you well know is, is getting at least a look enough to know which direction it's going <laughs> exactly <laughs> yep <laughs> So having dogs that are cautious enough at that first scent and waiting for you to catch up and get there and then slowly working that scent, working a, a true a true foot trail or even close enough for them to start working the body scent. Once that body scent is strong enough, a good grouse dog knows it has to stop there. And, and a solid grouse point can be a 30-yard point. 
you're not going to kick many grouse off the ground like a woodcock. Yeah. And, and and once that happens, once the dog stops and says, okay, this is close, I'm not going any further, then I tell the clients just to keep walking. Forget the dog now, walk. And, and you know, you'll get up there at 30 yards in that first grouse. So. Yeah. Okay, so you went exactly where I wanted you to go, Stephen. So this is going to be... This is going to be fun. Now, I'm curious right there on that last bit of information, what is telling you that, okay, this dog has stopped and he's not going, the clients need to keep going? Is it is it just kind of your gut instinct or the dog is really, you, maybe you've been trailing a bird and now the dog is stopped and not moving. At that point, you're telling your clients, go ahead. Correct. Well, I'll tell you, okay, let's, let's take Sasha for instance. Sasha, when she trails and she's just trailing, her tail starts, you know, she's got that birdie tail. Yeah. And she trails almost like a cat. It's very slow, very methodical. She'll, she's careful about where she puts her foot down and yeah. all of that. But once that tail stops moving, and even if she's still trailing a little bit more, I'll say, okay, we're getting closer. The tail stops. And then once she stops and points and the tail's rigid and everything, then I just tell them, keep walking. Gotcha. And she's decided, she has decided through through experience that she is close enough that, that if she goes anymore, she might bump the bird and she knows that's not how it's supposed to work. Yep. So you're reading your dogs, your dogs have experience, they're, they're indicating to you the scenario and you're watching it play out and you're making decisions on the go. That's, that's the way that it's supposed to work. That's really cool. And that's, that's really good insight. I think I've been curious about the relocation slash tracking or trailing of birds, however you want to call it. But so, sure, so you've sure. got, you've got phase one where your dog is, your dogs are running through the woods and they're hunting for any kind of scent. And then at that sure. point, a dog stops and goes on point. You move in like for my, my dog, for instance, he doesn't do a whole lot of trailing or tracking. So he's, he's going to basically run through the woods looking for air scent, body scent, or some kind of scent that's going to make him stop. When he stops, sure. I'm walking sure. in and I'm going to walk in and try to flush a bird. If he, if I don't flush a bird, I'm going to release him. He may release on his own. I'm not very strict on that. If he realizes the scent or the bird is gone, he might go, but he does not, okay. he does not do that cautious, again, whatever you want to call it, creep, trailing, or tracking. He doesn't do that. He doesn't follow up on the birds per se, like I've seen other dogs do. I've seen it be extremely effective, the method of hunting that you're describing in your dogs. And like you said, some people don't necessarily like that, but I think like the first time I saw it, it was a couple of, of setters that they did that trailing and tracking method and I didn't know what was going on. So I was, I was walking, uh, you know, following a dog, just like you said, on the side of a dog, following it for 10, 20, 30, 40 yards. And I'm thinking, where is this bird? Like, I don't know what's going on. Of course the birds, you know, running ahead of these dogs and they're following it. And, but once, once I understand what's actually happening, you know what, you know what to expect and you know what's going on. It's, it was, it was just a different, it's a different style. Different dogs do it differently. Well, they do. And, you know, and grouse especially are, are not a pen-raised bird. And, you know, they're out there trying to earn a living every day and avoid all sorts of predators on the ground and in the air. So they know you're coming long before we know they're there. And to be able to trail them up close enough to, to offer a good shot for a client and the client be, be ready the whole way through. And I don't mean gun on the shoulder, but just be learning. It's kind of like a moving point. if you. Yes. Yep. 
and being able to read the dog. And, and I, I'd like to say I told Sasha how to do that. But it's just mad. <laughs> she just started doing it. <laughs> she started doing it one day, like a year and a half old. I said, oh, wow, look at that. So for your client to be able to stand beside a dog and walk through the woods with it like that and, and to be ready. And, and like I said earlier, when she stops and the tail stops and she's decided she's close enough, then I can say, okay. You know, get ready. He's going to go. And, and nine times out of ten, she's right. So yeah, that's really interesting. When that I, again, I've become a little bit more familiar with obviously the different dogs and and the styles that they work with. But mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. I have seen that particular method of dogs where they stop on a particular scent, and if the bird isn't right there, they follow it up and they track trail whatever they're doing to follow up on yep. that ruffed grouse. I've seen that work very very well. Oh yeah, and you know, and, and the other dogs are the same. They they, they all have their own style of trailing, so yep. to speak, or of relocating. Yeah. But my dogs are steady to wing and shot as much a safety thing as anything. So yeah. if we go up, you know, if we're thirty, forty feet ahead of a dog that's pointing and nothing's happening, I'll look back and I'll tell it to come on. I'll say, you know, I'll tell it to be careful. Easy means slow down. Careful means there's a bird here. Be careful. And of course, they know the birds there somewhere. Sure. I don't have to tell them that. But careful means to proceed. And, and, you know, let's close the gap. Let's find it again. And sometimes they'll lose the scent and I'll tell them to move on. And once they start opening back up, they'll start doing a big circle until they can find the track. And of course, sometimes the bird's already flushed and you just, you wind up with nothing. Sure. Yep. Interesting. So I was going to ask you about steadiness with your dogs, but again, usually with, usually with guides, that's kind of a foregone conclusion. You want your dogs as steady as possible because it's just, it's safer for everybody there. It is. Well, you know, one day as a kid, um, the covey of quail flushed and I threw my gun up to shoot. And about the time I did, one of dad's pointers came barreling out and I saw her just in the nick of time not to pull the trigger. Yeah. And I decided right then that my dog can be steady to wing and stop. Yeah. And, and it is a safety factor. Plus to me, I just like the refinement of it. Um, it's not a mandatory thing. I know it's just a personal decision. Sure. But I, I do like it. And I do, you know, with, with the grouse, they don't flush like a covey of quail all at once. So if, if you're walking up your dog's point and before you get to it, the first the first bird goes, if your dog's not steady and it takes off after it, it's going to flush over the rest of it. Yep. But if your dog is standing there, and I tell clients all the time, just keep walking. Okay, we, we hear that first bird flush, and I look at them and say, keep walking. There's probably more. Keep walking. And sure enough, you know, you finally get there, and the dog's still standing pointing, and that fourth bird will go up, the fifth bird will go up, and that's the one they shoot because you finally close the gap, and, and they heard you coming. But that last one just, you know, he was obviously not not the alert one. Yep, <laughs> so, yep. But he's in the bag now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, I've seen that happen plenty of times, that's for sure. Sure. For people that are curious about Gordon Setters and your dogs in particular, talk about retrieving a little bit. Is it there? Is it not there? What do you do for it? It is pretty natural in most Gordons. My dogs do it fairly well. I do not force break them or anything like that. I don't make them retrieve. We're not not hunting ducks out in the sound. I can walk over and pick up a bird. And if it's warm, most of them don't want a mouthful of feathers. I can understand that, so I don't mind. Yeah. But it is natural. Um, I've imported a couple this past year that, that the male Arlo is a fantastic retriever. And it's what they breed for more in Europe. And Arlo is, is a fantastic retriever. Like a lab, like some of the labs we grew up with, just natural. As a puppy, he would bring whatever and just give it to me. The female retrieves well that I imported. And, and it's just something that, like I said, I don't force break, but it is a pretty natural thing for a Gordon setter to retrieve and that was another one of the reasons they were pretty prominent in the market hunting days because as a guy making his living on the game he couldn't afford to lose anything right where are you importing these dogs from these two came from slovakia okay 
and, and not for any particular reason. I did not pick Slovakia. I was looking to import, and, and she guides over there on uh, on some biggest estate shoots and things like that. And so I had her send me the pedigrees, and you know, with the the wonders of the internet and Google, you can find out anything you want to know. Right. So I did all my research and everything, and then I chose a female that had a, a nice white spot on her chest, which is a, a like I like that look. And then she kept posting pictures of this fantastic little male carrying sticks around, toys around. Every picture, he has something in his mouth. So I just went ahead and got that one, too. I asked my wife if, what she thought, and she said, can you for- afford it? And I said, well, no, of course not. <laughs> so I did it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. So how many – do you have a target for how many dogs you or litters you like to have each year? How do you maintain your program? I, I honestly, I breed when I need to start a new puppy. Okay. I, I don't breed a lot. People ask me how many litters I have every year, and I'll say point three because that's about right. I have a litter about every three years. Okay. Even though I am planning two for next year, but um, but field gordons are not a dime a dozen, and I, I carry a pretty good waiting list. And I tell people I'm upfront with them if if they're in a hurry for a dog, I'm not your guy. If you want to wait five years, then I'll put you on the list. That's no problem. Yeah. Like I said, there are not a lot of field gordons and not a lot of bread to hunt in the woods. Most of them these days are more bigger running dogs for field trials. Or, uh, I know there's some guys out west, Tom Lowing in particular, he, he breeds some, some big running dogs because he hunts the plains and things like that, which makes sense. So sure. I just don't do it. I think you mentioned that your females tend to top out around 40 pounds. Is that correct? And then where, where do your males come in? Well, yeah, the females are around 40 to 45. The import might be a little bit bigger. I haven't weighed her lately. <laughs> the big imported male is going to hit about 70. Okay, he's wow. He's very tall. Yep. If he's on his back feet, his back legs on me, he's almost as tall as I am. But you wow. don't say much. I'm only five. I'm only five <laughs> six. You know that. <laughs> yeah. I'm no giant. But um, but most of them are in the 55 to 60 pound range. And I like, you know, that's that's the, the Gordon's supposed to be the heaviest bone, the heaviest built for uh, all day labor, like I said. And I, and I like that in them. I know a lot of people are starting to go to smaller dogs but i I just in my opinion the the bigger heavier stronger dogs can take the the day in and day out grind of doing this five months out of the year especially a dog that again like you said they learn how to run through the woods and they're they're kind of they're not necessarily doing it intentionally but they're taking care of themselves out there Correct. They just know how through experience. They know how to move through the holes. And, and just like you and I, when you're walking through the woods, yep. you, you have to get good at it. You, you know, it, it takes practice to be good at it. And you know how to look ahead and you know, you're always 15 feet ahead or so looking for that next gap to walk through. Yeah. The one thing that amazes me, I mean, I, to a certain extent, the dogs being smaller than we are is helpful. They can kind of, they can go under and around and over. They can kind of do everything, but they never seem to get stuck or hung up in the hazel brush like we do. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, they don't. That stuff, that stuff can get cussed at once or twice. Can <laughs> <laughs> that's for darn sure. Yep. So, how long? How long does your season go down there now? Well, uh, grouse season runs through the end of February. Okay. And and generally, after woodcock ends at the end of uh, January, um, I'll do a few more grouse trips through February. But then the, the woodcock are here, and I know run and i'll train client dogs on spring woodcock here and then they'll actually will start nesting here i actually found a nest last year in mid-january but they'll start nesting here pretty in pretty good numbers late february to march so i'm careful about that but that's all i train on is wild birds i have about five ten thousand acres across the road from us here at home this is all woods and fields so the the woods are are cut and and the woodcock in there so that's all i'll train on is woodcock i don't use the or anything but with that being said the 
the duration of the season is, you know, like I said, I start in mid-September, go through the end of February. Right. Then, yeah. I, you know, and I, I start running on Woodcock and in, in mid-August here, the local birds, and then I'll go back to Pine Ridge for the spring to the weekend landing. So May, what's that? Mid-May, I guess. Of, yep. We'll go, we'll go through mid-May doing that. Yeah. You so don't have June, a lot of downtime. No, actually this past year, because this past summer, June was the only month I did not run on birds because July, we and just a few days in July, we had a nice cold front that came through and the temperatures were in the 50s. So I loaded up and we went and pointed Woodcock in July for the first time ever. <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> That's unreal. Comparing and contrasting a little bit, I know the grouse hunting, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't assume that I know anything about grouse hunting in North Carolina or in the Southeast. What might somebody expect you know, obviously you have a lot of experience, you have time on the ground. What might a day look like grouse hunting down there as far as numbers go and, and opportunity? Well, you're going to walk a lot of miles. You're going to have few opportunities. Last year, I'll be honest, last year, my best grouse day in North Carolina was seven birds. We put up seven birds. Okay. And, you know, we actually, you know, they're, they're all presented shots and he had an opportunity to shoot a limit. So that was fine. And honestly, the, the a, a usual day is probably going to be five flushes and... 10 miles of up and down. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Now, woodcock are different. We get good woodcock flights. Sure. And I think my best, woodcock, my best woodcock day last year was 34 separate birds, and we had two puppies, so we went, you know, and, and put them on some reflushes and things like that. We didn't we didn't shoot just a couple birds, but, but 34 separate birds, and that was a good day. Yeah. So, woodcock, obviously, 45-day season, three-bird limit. What's the limit on rough grouse down there? Three a day. Three a day. Okay. And it's more its more of a goal or a challenge than a limit. Sure. Well, that's, just, that's really <laughs> kind of the same way up here, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Sure, sure. <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to shoot five grouse in a day, that's for sure. Sure thing. <laughs> or it's, I should say, it's its not easy. Some some people make it look easy sometimes, but it's definitely not an easy thing to do, that's for sure. You got to be, <laughs> you got to know what you're doing. You got to be in the right stuff. And Correct. It's one thing Correct. to find enough grouse to bag that many, but then you got to actually do it. <laughs> got to be able to Correct. shoot. I think. I think in the, in the two falls I've been up at in, in Pine Ridge, and that's so that's ninety days of hunting. I think that there one guy last year shot a limit. Okay. Yeah. And not for the fact that we don't put up a ton of birds every day. Just he was a young guy. He had great reflexes, and they came back, and we made a big deal out of it because it was the only time that I remember. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would that would be a that would be a day to remember. That's for sure. So we didn't we haven't touched on this yet, Stephen. But I think we will do our our mutual friend Jack Butler a little bit of favor because I certainly talk about my gum leaf boots on this podcast. They're a they're a supporter of the podcast, and we appreciate that. Sure. And I like to let sure. my listeners know about it. But I I have put my boots through through a pretty good test over the past three seasons now. But I know for a fact that I, there's probably nobody that's put their gum leaf boots through a, through a tougher <laughs> test than you have, Stephen, because just based on your time on the ground, time in the woods, and you know, we chatted about this when we were at Pine Ridge a couple of seasons ago, but talk about yeah. your choice of footwear and why you like them. Well, uh, start back up a little bit to about five years ago, I, I saw an ad for Gum Leaf USA, and I looked at them and I said, oh, cool, zippered zippered boots. And I've always worn wellies. I like to wear them. And so I, I ordered a pair online. Well, and it, you know, I hadn't even gotten the boots yet, and I get an email from, from Jack and says, how did you find out about the boots? And Jack and I emailed back and forth a little bit, and, and we talked, and we talked hunting, and, and he didn't know a lot about it at the time. And so we met in greensboro and had dinner and and had a great time we laughed and carried on and and 
I uh, just it started from there. So I kind of helped introduce him to the world of hunting and upland hunting and, and all sorts of hunting. And I, like I said, it's, it's, I've hunted about everything in this state anyway. So from there, I just I, I love the boots. Um, I still have my original Royal Zips that have the old style sole on them. Yep. And and they're, they're still in good shape. I hate to know how many miles are on them, but right now <laughs> I wear I wear Field Wellies because they're they're, they're the cotton line version. Okay. It's not insulated. They're not insulated, which I don't need um, upland hunting. My feet don't get cold. They're light. They're always waterproof. You know, up to me anyway. Yep. And I just put them on every day. I, I wear the same pair of boots every day. I've got this pair. He sent me this pair of field bellies this summer. They've got, including training and guiding, a, a thousand, about 1,058 miles. I think I added up the other day on them already. Yeah. So, so I just, I slide them on. They feel fantastic. And like I said, and you even mentioned it earlier, how wet it is up in Minnesota. Yeah. And this year was especially wet. Yep. And it was just, it was, there were puddles everywhere. And I just, I, I put on my, my gum leaves every day. And like I said, they're comfortable. I know I'm going to be waterproof up to a certain depth and I don't have to worry about it. And in, in, in the mountains, I wear them in the mountains because they're always streams. It's amazing, you know, all the water that flows at 4,000 feet. But I don't have to worry about looking for a way to get across a stream dry. And, and or trying to skip across the top of a rock, I just walk through the stream. Yeah, Jack. Jack is a, a very good fellow, and we we have many conversations. I just spoke to him the other day, actually, and um, he he is a good supporter of, of of you guys, the Project Upland, of us as as Upland hunters. He's yep. behind us a hundred percent. Yeah, I would certainly echo that, and that, and that's not just really pumping up gum leaf. I mean, there's a lot of there's there are brands and companies that that do good things. Obviously, Gumleaf USA, they make a really quality boot, and I can speak to that. You can speak to that. But Jack is that way. That story is not unusual. I've got a lot of listeners that there's not many companies where if somebody's asking me about them, I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, hey, call this guy. He works there. You know, I'd say go to their website and check out their stuff. But with Gumleaf, I say... Don't be afraid to call and ask for Jack because he oh, yeah. he loves to chat. He loves to talk to people. And and if you're unsure about anything, he loves to talk you into the right pair of boots. And and he's just great about that. No, he really is. And he knows he knows his boots. And and the uh, I get emails from him all the time where I'm copied on a response, and somebody will say, you know, I'm looking. I, I hunt grouse or woodcock, and and I'm looking for a good pair of boots. And he'll copy me on the email, and and I'll take over and just you know. And pump them up, and, yep. and honestly, I, you know, I had to buy my first pair of boots. It's not like I'm. Yep, I did too. Saying this, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not just saying this to get free free things. I, you know, I spend money with him, but I also believe in the boots because it's what I do. And you know, as upland hunters, the only thing that we really have to depend on 100 percent is our feet. Yeah, you have to get in, we have to get out, and you have to be able to walk all day. Yeah, nobody likes walking with soggy feet. No, definitely not. And that's you know, those are some <laughs> of the questions that. I get, and I'm sure you get too, is I was, I was originally on the fence about, you know, why would I want to wear a rubber boot all the time? You know, maybe when it's really wet, but very quickly I came to the same conclusion that you did. It's just, there's enough water in the woods on a given, on any mm-hmm. given day. And they're so comfortable. And one thing I always tell people is they ask, do your feet get hot? And I wear the neoprene line ones because they, sure. they make the boots a little bit stiffer. And I like that a mm-hmm. little bit stiffer sure. through the upper, but right. They'll ask, do your feet get hot? And, you know, maybe on a really warm early season day, my feet might get hot. But I mean, really, if it's, if it's hot, your feet are going to sweat no matter what kind of boots you're in. And oh, without a doubt, a yeah, sweaty yeah. foot is never as bad as a wet foot. So no, oh, ma- no matter how sweaty your feet are, when they're in that inside that gum leaf boot, they're, 
they're still going to be more dry than a boot that's letting water in and, and soaking water up. And that's one other thing. One thing I love about the rubber boots is if you're walking through water and stepping in puddles, they shed all the water. It all falls right off. Your boots, sure. your boots weigh the sure. same at the end of the day that they did at the start of the day, where another, a leather canvas boot, that's going to soak up some water throughout the day. Sure. Exactly right. They, they don't change weight through the day. And, and that's, you know, very important because if you add up your weight times every step oh, over, yeah. over a 10 mile, over a 10 mile day, it really adds up fast. Yeah, that's for sure. But yeah, walking through, stepping through creeks, going through alder swamps. I mean, I like just going, I can go direct basically wherever I want to go, as opposed to tiptoeing and trying to, trying to dance through the cover. You can just plow right through it. Sure thing. You don't have to look for that, that tree that fell across the creek or whatever. <laughs> yep. and try to try to tight rope across that. You just walk across it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Well, Stephen, this has been a blast, man. I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about rough grouse hunting, woodcock hunting, your dogs, how they hunt, and I think you have a you know you have a really great perspective again, as we talked about, just based on where you hunt these birds and the different locales, and I think you have a lot to offer. And I appreciate you being uh, willing to share that with the Project Upland community. And and uh, what would be if people have questions or they want to learn more about you and your dogs, where where should we send them? Uh, I'm on Facebook, Stony Brook Gordon Setters, uh, Insta, Instagram, Stony Brook Gordon Setters, which I'm learning Instagram. Give me, uh, <laughs> not my, not my generation. Well, we'll, but, we'll uh, put, we'll put your we'll, link in the show notes and we'll get you some <laughs> followers, Stephen. Oh, good. Well, thank you. And, um, we're online, stonybrookgordonsetters.com and my phone number is on there and everything. So I'm always answering the phone. I don't have a problem with talking to people and, and you guys are doing a great job at getting new hunters in the woods and we have to do that or, or to keep our sport alive is, is make sure we're getting new folks out. And I take out, I don't know, I think last year I took out 28 people for their first grouse and or woodcock. And, you know, that's what we have to do as guides and as people promoting the sport, we have to keep getting new people in the woods. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And one of the ways that we help out in that is exposing new people to people like you that have been doing it for 30, 40 years. You know, that's, you have a lot to share and, and I can't say that enough. And I appreciate your willingness to do that, Stephen. Oh, well, thank you. No problem. No problem. I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys giving me a chance. All right, man. Thanks again. Take care. I look forward to uh, connecting with you at Pine Ridge or, or maybe down, down in your neck of the woods one day. And uh, I wish you the best of luck the rest of the way. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Take care, Stephen. Thanks, Nick. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. The podcast is also brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dogs or Collars, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode. This is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.